Heads up, everybody, there's one curse word in this episode. It's a good one, though. You're going to enjoy it. I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. So at this point, everybody knows George Floyd's name, right? But Mm -hmm. there are, of course, so many more names that haven't made headlines or sparked protests in the same way. I think it's significant that we're in Pride Month and that we're fighting for justice for not just George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, but also for LGBTQ. Somebody just got, I think two transgender just got shot within the last week. Fewer people know about Tony McDade, the black trans man who was shot and killed by police two days after George Floyd was killed. Or Dominique Remy Fells or Rhea Milton, black trans women who were reported murdered two weeks later and within a 24-hour period of each other. Trans women are being murdered like every other day. Black trans women, they face racism on top of sexism, on top of the gender fuckery that it is. According to the Human Rights Campaign, at least 16 transgender or gender nonconforming people have been fatally shot or killed by other violent means this year. On June 14th, our producer Kumari Devarajan went to the All Black Lives Matter protest in Los Angeles. Thousands marched in protest against police brutality with a special focus on LGBTQ victims. And the voices you're hearing, they're from that march. Black Lives Matter, period. So let me just make sure I list. Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter, Black Children's Lives Matter, Black Love Matter. That same day, on the other side of the country in Brooklyn, an estimated 15,000 people participated in the March for Black Trans Lives. And the people at the All Black Lives Matter march that Kumari spoke to, they were saying how marches like these make perfect sense. Black LGBTQ people are disproportionately victims of violence from both the police and from everybody else. And they've been fighting this fight for a long time. Queer rights was given to us by the Stonewall riots, which were started by Black, queer, trans women. And they were riots, to be clear. We're the originators of the protest. They don't say our names enough. This week, we're bringing you a story from Brittany Luce, who is the co-host of The Nod podcast. The Nod, by the way, is now a show on Quibi. And this story is about a name we do not say often enough. Stormy Delavier. Stormy was a black butch woman who was known for many things, which you're going to hear about soon. But one is that when it came to protecting her community, she didn't pull any punches. Okay, fine. Just keep walking. You know, I've got enough problems tonight. Keep walking. Okay, so, mental picture time. The year is 1957, and you're seated at the Apollo Theater up in Harlem, and the show's about to start. You know, the orchestra in the pit is tuning up, and the lights are starting to dim, and everyone in the audience is hushed and dressed to impress. So the band starts, and the lights come up, and suddenly the entire stage is populated with 25 of the most dazzling divas that you have ever seen in your life. You know, in all different shapes and sizes and colors. I mean, you know, they have headdresses with feathers and crystals and their cleavage is hiked up high. And their eyebrow arches are like damn near touching heaven. And then the announcer, who's, who's kind of like the anchor for the show, makes an entrance. Introducing the world's most unusual show. Another jewel-box overture with Ned Harvey and his orchestra. And he's tall 
and in a beautiful slim-cut tuxedo. I mean, like, whatever people think when they hear the word debonair, like, he is it. And he's got this rich, baritone voice that just sails out over the crowd. And he leads the chorus of showgirls into the show's signature song. You're watching the Jewel Box Review. And like any other show at the Apollo, this is top of the line. But it's just a little different than their usual shows. The show is billed as 25 men and one girl. So most of the people on stage are impersonating women. And the audience is supposed to spend the show figuring out who the quote-unquote real girl is. Toward the end of the show, it's dramatically revealed that none of the people high-kicking in dresses was the real girl. It was actually the smooth baritone in the tuxedo. Stormy DeLavier. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Brittany Luce. Eric is out this week reporting other stories, but I am here to tell you about this woman, Stormy DeLavier. I kind of became obsessed with Stormy a while ago when I came across her photo randomly. It was this glamorous black and white photo, probably from the 1950s, and in it was a slim black woman in a tuxedo. And she had short, platinum blonde hair. It was, it was styled kind of in a conch, and, and she had smooth, pale skin and this haunting gaze that just drew me in. You know, at the time, I didn't know anything about Stormy's life as the leader of the Jewel Box Review. In fact, I didn't know anything about her life. All I knew is that there was this, this poise, this presence emanating from that photo. She seemed powerful and important and... She gave off the charisma of a Hollywood star, but I'd never heard of her before. So I started digging, and I really had to dig. There are so few records of her and not a lot of people who know her whole life story. But the more I learned, the more astounding it seemed that I didn't know who she was. Everyone needs to know about this woman. And today, I'm going to tell you all about her and how she moved on from a tough Southern upbringing to become a glamorous drag performer and a vigilante defender of the defenseless, a true American hero. So in order for me to tell you this story, we we, got to go back, like way back to 1920, and all the way down to New Orleans, Louisiana. That's where our hero, Stormy DeLavier, was born on December 24th to a white father and a black mother. Stormy was born mixed race in the Deep South. She was not issued a birth certificate. This is Stormy's friend of over 25 years, Lisa Canistrasi. Over the years, Stormy shared a lot with Lisa. So she always identified as black because she was very close with her mom. You know, being mixed race, she was taunted by the white kids, she was taunted by the black kids. She was always swimming upriver. And, uh, you know, she, she, was, she was attacked multiple times, almost near death when she was a kid, like, beaten to a pole. Here's how Stormy described her childhood in a story from a 2009 interview. Because some of the things that they did to people that were mixed blood, you have to remember, my mother was black and I have a white face. Well, I'm crippled in one, one leg beef guard. It took me years to get the brace off my leg. I've got a big scar here where they left me hanging on a fence. 
by one leg. But having a white father and a black mother was not the only way Stormy knew she was different. She knew she wasn't attracted to men. And, uh, but, you know, you, could, you couldn't really be out. Uh, you, you'd probably, she probably would have been murdered. And so she needed to leave the South and she moved to Chicago. And she went there as a woman who dressed like a man. Chicago gave Stormy a fresh start. She lived as a straight man during that time. You see, being a masculine-presenting queer woman was dangerous and even illegal in a lot of places. But living as a straight man let Stormy present herself how she wanted. And she looked good. Here's Lisa again. I mean, my story was gorgeous. I mean, I don't think she looked like James Dean, but I think she had the swagger of James Dean. Like, she had that natural, just quiet, sexy look. She was in her 20s now. She wasn't getting bullied and harassed anymore. She got a shot at a normal life. She even got a boo. She had a beautiful, beautiful partner. Her name was Diana. And Diana was a dancer. And Diana would have her girlfriends over the house, and they would play cards in the kitchen. And Stormy would have her friends over, and they would hang out in the den and drink brandy and smoke cigars. It was like that. Chicago also gave Stormy a chance to really come into her own as a singer. You see, she had always loved performing, and she sang a lot growing up in New Orleans, but back then she had to do it in a sensible dress, a curl bob, string of pearls, you know, women's clothing. But being in Chicago so far from home gave her the freedom to tap into the look that would eventually make her famous. She went from looking like a long-lost Andrew's sister to wearing a long, slim suit, close-cropped hair, and and she had this 10-mile stare that, so I have been told, used to knock the ladies dead. And it was looking like this that Stormy took her act on the road. In her travels, Stormy met two men who would change her life forever. Their names were Doc Benner and Danny Brown, and they were the creators of the Jewel Box Review. They'd built something of a small empire around their traveling drag reviews in the 30s and 40s, and they played clubs in Miami, Cleveland, Detroit. They played all over the country. Danny and Doc wanted to elevate what they called the art of female impersonation. They wanted to bring it out of sort of the burlesque vaudeville scene and take it to like, you know, like the big stage. And in Stormy, they basically found the perfect MC. Stormy joined the show as MC and kind of their de facto musical director in 1955. And she stayed for 14 years. And over that time, Stormy became a hit. Here's Stormy's friend Lisa again. She was a one of uh, favorite subjects for Diana Arbus, the photographer. So Diana took some really amazing shots of her. Stormy would talk about her affiliations with um, Dinah Washington, you know, some of the old singers, Nina Simone, um, because she traveled in those circles, you know, those sophisticated um, African-American circles. And, you know, she was was highly regarded, you know, as, as she was royalty, you know. She was royalty. The show was a huge success, and it played all over. You know, at big-name theaters and also Chitlin Circuit venues, including the Apollo Theater, where they played several times a year. 
first and foremost, the Jewel Box Review was a top-notch performance project. That's number one. Everything about it, the set, the costumes, and the performers were top-notch. This is Marita Dunn. She's, like, almost hyperactive, and she's tall, and she's, like, oozing with style. She used to be a model. And she saw the Jewel Box Review, like, quite a few times as a young girl growing up in Harlem. And to this day, she has nothing but praise for the show. No amount of money was spared in making that Jewel Box Review. I mean, it was top of it. If it needed a mink coat, it had a mink coat. If it needed a zebra, it had a zebra. What about the singing and the dancing? We're talking about the jewel box review. You wasn't going to get if you couldn't sing or dance. They were ladies of gorgeous dimensions. The way you try to see now, like the RuPaul's of now, they were then. At one point in our talk, I pulled out a few old photographs just to jog her memory. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Describe to me uh, the photo. Ah. Look at her. Look at what she has on. Oh, yeah. No, I see there's there's a drag performer right in the center and with look, a look huge the, headdress. This is beautiful. Look, look at like. everything. It's not just the headdress. Look at the shoes. Look at the whole outfit. Take a good look. And is this as you remember it? Oh, yes. Definitely. That's why I was excited. Because <laughs> <laughs> I came from fashion, so if you can still excite me, you're good. <laughs> okay, so call me country, but when I learned about this, I was like, what? Like, there's a whole generation of baby boomers whose parents took them to a Sunday matinee drag show as a family activity. I needed to know how this could have been acceptable, given what we know about how people treat LGBT people to this day. So I called up this guy. My name is John Reddick. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, educated, Ohio State. John is a Harlem historian. And he says that playing with gender is about as old as time for Black folks. One of the main performers at the Apollo was this comedian named um, Moms Mabley, who was gay. And when you see her personal pictures, she dressed like a man. And so everyone within the, her, her peer group knew she was gay. But he says that that doesn't mean that the 50s and the 60s were a more accepting time for queer Black people than we remember. It was fine on the stage, but once they left the theater... It was a different story. Technically, uh, those performers could not go on the street dressed gender-crossing. They could get arrested. I think into the 60s or, or so they could get arrested. So, you know, it had to be sort of set in theater. You know, to the end, it's like judged performance, you know. It's the mass that's being played up, not really the, the sexuality. It's like a masquerade ball or whatever, you know, the idea that you're going to be this other, whatever. It's knowing that, you know, under this is, is a man or a woman. But even if it was just performance, sanitized from sexuality, the Jewel Box Review gave Stormy a place to be herself. And the 50s and 60s were a pretty happy time for her. She traveled all over the country performing for adoring audiences as herself. She was living in New York City. She had stopped pretending to be a straight man. And not only did she have the love of Diana, her girlfriend, but she had the love and respect of her castmates, many of whom were guys 10 or 20 years her junior. She referred to them as her boys. It was like a chosen family, and she considered herself the one who protected that family. Here's Stormy again talking about her former castmates. They were nice young men, and they were my friends. 
They did everything I asked them to do. They showed me great respect. And I respected them as performers and as human beings. Stormy had this little corner of the world set up the way she wanted. You know, like this this safe, warm little space for black or queer or creative people who, you know, kind of like her, they never quite fit in anywhere else. But then something happened, something that made her realize she needed to protect that little world. That is coming up after the break. Parents, ever wish you had a coach or a fairy godmother for when your kids hit you with those really tough questions? Well, NBR's Life Kit has tons of episodes to help you through the hardest parenting moments. Listen and subscribe to Life Kit. On June 28, 1969, Stormy was at the Stonewall Inn, hanging with some friends. The Stonewall was a popular West Village bar and also an unofficial community meeting place for young queer folks in New York at that time. That night, police raided the bar. Now, a raid in a gay hangout wasn't unusual for that time. It was illegal to cross-dress and illegal for gay people to gather in public. And cops would target certain bars looking for anyone breaking those laws. You know, they'd kick people out, they'd take their liquor, and look on their IDs to see whether their listed gender matched the way that they were dressed. It was humiliating and subhuman treatment, but it was the law back then. But this night was different. After years of just complying with the usual hassling and arrests... Folks got pissed. They refused to hand over their IDs. The people who the cops had to let go, they decided to stick around. And when the police started grabbing people and forcing them out of the bar, they fought back. Stonewall was a turning point in the LGBT rights movement. People were speaking up, saying, you know, it's not enough to eke out an existence in the margins, in the theater or in the bar scene. They wanted full equality. A lot of people say that Stormy threw the first punch at Stonewall. Of course, LGBT history is rarely recorded, and Stormy herself was pretty coy about the whole thing. But according to pretty much everyone I talked to, punching a cop for hassling her friends is exactly the type of person that Stormy was. Here's Lisa, Stormy's friend from earlier in the show. You know, I think her... Her experiences as a young person and being, you know, beat up and being not accepted for who who she was, I think all that lived inside her. And she turned it around to protect the community. Like she she recycled it, all that anger, you know, when she used it for good. 1969 was a big year of change for Stormy. We can't say for sure if there's a correlation between these two events, but... About two months after Stonewall, Stormy quit the Jewel Box Review. That same year, she also lost the love of her life. Her partner of over 25 years, Diana. I know that, that Diana's death devastated her. She always holds, carried a picture of her in her wallet. Mm-hmm. She was beautiful, beautiful woman. So Stormy is no longer touring with the Jewel Box Review. She's angry at the way her community is being treated, and she's heartbroken. And this is when she enters a phase of her life where her own happy world isn't enough. 
She wants to take that feeling of love and protection that she has for her own community and bring it to the streets. So she joins an advocacy organization for LGBT rights, and she decides to become a bodyguard. During the day, she watches over rich New York families, but at night, she was watching out for her own. She worked the door at lesbian and gay bars with an iron fist and a pistol on her hip. Here's some footage of her from that period, outside a lesbian bar called The Cubby Hole. No, guys, that isn't a fishbowl. Keep walking. Keep walking. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, all right, all right, all right. No problems, guys. No problems. Okay, okay, fine. Just keep walking. You know, I've got enough problems tonight. Keep walking. Sormi continued to protect patrons of lesbian and gay bars for over 30 years. She laid down the law, and she was known for watching out for younger queer women. She became known as kind of a cowboy of the West Village. Again, here's Stormy's friend, Lisa Canastrasi. Don't you mess with my baby girls. I mean, that's what she would say. And she would be like, trust me, you want to keep walking and put her hand on her hip. Sometimes she would follow them up the block. (laughs) I mean, she was amazing. So here's the thing about Lisa. She was not only Stormy's good friend. They were actually co-workers for a while. They met in 1985 when they were both working at the cubbyhole. Lisa was just a college student tending bar to make some money. I worked Monday night, which is historically the slowest night in the bar business. And uh, my shift was 9 to 4. And uh, right around 1 in the morning... They would be empty till four, so that's three hours. Mm. I would study my my psychology uh, stuff for St. John's, and uh, I would take little breaks, um, and then Stormy and I would just chit chat, and we just bonded. I mean, it was really quite instant. We just liked each other right away. Working those long nights together, Lisa and Stormy forged a fast friendship, despite their forty-four year age gap. For years, the cubbyhole was Stormy's top gig, and when it closed in nineteen ninety, Lisa decided to buy the bar herself. She opened it one year later as Henrietta Hudson. And when it came time to staff up, she knew just who to call. Stormy worked for me immediately. I assembled an incredible staff, like the, the creme de la creme of the downtown gay scene. Stormy worked the door at Henrietta Hudson into her late 70s. It was her steadiest paycheck. But even after she formally retired, Lisa kept paying her. I asked her why. I knew she needed the money, and she deserved it, and she's my friend, and I do a lot of fundraising and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with just, instead of fundraising for an organization, just directly give somebody money who's amazing, who does a lot for the community. The fact that Lisa kept paying Stormy even after she stopped working there, it touched me. It was such a simple gesture, but something so big at the same time. You know, Stormy would come in on a Sunday night. She'd sit at the bar, get a vodka rocks, and, you know, she'd get an envelope. It was kind of like she was collecting a pension. Stormy kept coming into Henrietta Hudson until about 2010. Then she stopped coming. She was getting older and tended to stay closer to home. She and Lisa fell out of touch. And then Lisa got some news. Stormy had fallen and broken a bone, and because she had no listed blood relatives, she was taken under the care of the state. And she was suffering from dementia. One of Stormy's neighbors, a woman named Michelle Zalapani, 
reached out to Lisa and a bunch of other people in the bar scene that Stormy knew. She set up a meeting to try to figure out how they could help her. There were about 12, maybe 14 people, and we got together and we talked about the situation. I didn't see anything solution-based. I didn't really see that anybody was looking for a solution. They were just kind of in the problem. But um, we were slated to meet the next week and come back with some, you know, some something. Two people showed up. It was me and Michelle, who I didn't know. I never knew her. But it was a fucking heartache that nobody came to the second meeting. No one else was stepping up, so Lisa and Michelle stepped in. They met with a lawyer, a state congressman, and a judge, and won the right to be Stormy's legal guardians. And their first order of business? They put Stormy up in the Cadillac of nursing homes so she could finish out her days in comfort. It was a, be- it was a utopian idea uh, of this uh, an assisted living facility for people who didn't have a lot of money that showed them respect and that was pretty and that was clean and had good food and activities and everybody was so loving. They knew Stormy's backstory. They were intrigued. After all those years of fighting, she was safe, she was comfortable, and she was being taken care of the same way she had taken care of others her whole life. Stormy is somebody for whom life was really hard. From the day she was born, she was labeled illegitimate. And it's a label that could have followed her throughout her entire life, and it could have made her bitter. But neither one of those things happened. It was touching and it was beautiful how at the end of Stormy's life, you know, the people that she had protected for so long came back to protect her. She had given out so much love over the course of her life. It really, it really came back as a comfort to her in the end. That is, that's the lesson to me that, of her life. That's like the lesson that her life teaches. You could pull out a gun on some people. You could pack a pistol. You could, but you could also be a loving person. And Stormy was just, she was so brave. Like she, she didn't feel the need to fulfill anybody's ideas about, you know, what she should look like or how she should dress or who she should be. You know, she fought a lot of battles, and she put up with a lot of shit. And, you know, unless you really dig, you're not really going to find this woman's story. The nursing home where she was living was maybe a 10-minute walk from my apartment. And I didn't know her. Um, she, She died before I even learned who she was. You know, this is somebody who should have had ticker tape parades. There should be streets named after her. But if I hadn't have happened to see her face, her glamorous face in the corner of my computer screen, I, I, I would never even have gone down this path. Lavier died on May 24, 2014, at the ripe old age of 93. 
The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and James T. Green. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We were edited this week by Annie Rose Strasser, Alex Bloomberg, and Jorge Just. Additional editing help from Sarah Geis and Jordan Barnes. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Engineering from Cedric Wilson and Matthew Boll. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show by Bobby Lord, Haley Shaw, The Five Dewtones, and the Maury Morrison Orchestra. Special thanks to Michelle Parkerson and Women Make Movies for granting us permission to use excerpts from her film, Stormy, The Lady of the Jewel Box. Also to Kurt Clock for granting us permission to use a 2009 interview of Stormy. And finally, to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. 